morning. So a few years ago, not sure how many, but a few years ago, I shared with you a tweet from John Acuff, who is a bit of a comedian, motivational speaker, and author, and it simply said something like this, I asked Mary, and she says she did know, and she wishes you'd stop singing that song. (laughs) And I think back at that time, I said something like, well, there were things she did know, and there were probably some things she didn't know, and I don't think it's fair of us to expect that Mary knew everything that was happening in that moment. Uh, She didn't have to know it all. She had to figure it out. Add to that a post that someone else shared with me the other day. A Baptist pastor wrote, and this is good news for all of us, to save everyone time this year, I made a biblically correct list of everything mentioned in the song, Mary, Did You Know, that she knew and didn't know. In order, you're welcome. Here are his answers. No, yes, 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 no, 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 yes, no, 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 yes, yes, no, no. (laughs) Now, I didn't, in fact, uh, fact check him. I started to, but I said, I haven't got time for this. I didn't fact check him. uh, But the point is, there were indeed some things Mary knew right off the bat, and there were some things Mary didn't know, some things Mary had to figure out as she went along, just like the rest of us. For instance, Mary did not know how this would happen. She said so in verse 34. She asked the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Turns out that uh, that's an important question on the minds of middle school boys too, according to Pastor Kristen. (laughs) They, like Mary, want to know how Mary became pregnant. The truth is Mary was likely about the age of a middle schooler, close to it. Scholars think she was 14, tops 15. When she asked the question, how, this, how will this be? Luke 1, 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. To the question, how will this be? The only possible answer is because of the Holy Spirit. Because of God. Because of the Spirit of God, she will conceive and bear a child, the Messiah, without the aid of a husband. But there's even more to the story. I mean, the virgin birth is enough all on its own, but listen to what the angel says about this child that she will bear, uh, backing up to verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be, but the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The the angel Gabriel layers title upon title, phrase upon phrase uh, about this child. Much of this is messianic language taken and borrowed from the prophecies of the Old Testament to be certain. Mary's son will be a a different kind of king. And she likely doesn't know exactly what kind of king he's going to be. Honestly, no one did. The angel bookends this list of titles in Luke 1 with two titles that suggest Jesus' divinity. Son of the Most High in verse 32 and Son of God in verse 35. But once again, other than this idea of a virgin birth... Um, Mary likely did not understand that her son would be God in the flesh. For it was common in Israel, it was common in other cultures in that day to refer to the king as the son of God or as the son of the gods. 
And this is certainly how Mary must have heard it, at least initially. And as the story of Jesus unfolds in the Gospels, it dawns on people that Jesus is, in fact, divine. In ways Mary probably could not have understood at the time, Jesus is God in the flesh. The Gospel of John says so in chapter 1. John introduces us to someone called the Word. The Word. More literally, he just calls this person the Logos. And the idea of Logos comes from ancient Greek philosophy. It refers to the, the uh, rational principle or order that undergirds all of the universe. So keeping that in mind, this is how the Apostle John begins his gospel about Jesus. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and then skipping down to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. The Word, verse 14, became flesh. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's there's something very profound happening here. In John's opening words and in Mary's conversation with the angel. We've become so familiar with these words that we can miss it. But this is profound. If the Word of God was with God, and if the Word was God from the very beginning, if the Word was the one in whom and with whom and through whom all things were created, and if the Word became flesh and became one of us, then Mary will birth into the world the one who birthed the world into existence. Mary will birth into the world the one who birthed the world into existence. The Eastern Orthodox Church refers to Mary as the Theotokos. Greek word that means God-bearer. I think it sometimes gets translated as mother of God, but it means God-bearer. Mary will carry and give birth to and teach God to walk among us as a toddler. The one who invented walking has to learn to walk. Mary will teach the Word how to say words. Mary will teach the Word of God to the Word of God. I think that on some level, some mysterious level, the profound nature of what is going on in the birth of Christ is why Christmas permeates our culture this time of year, every year. There are other cynical answers, but (laughs) I think there's something profound that permeates, that causes Christmas to permeate our culture every year. Even among people who do not know Christ or believe in God, even as it might appear that the popularity of Christianity is waning, Christmas is still going full steam and growing. Now, like many of you, I sometimes complain about how early Christmas decorations seem to go up. Although, I have to tell you, I was driving down a road, I won't tell you where, I was driving down a road yesterday, and there was still a Halloween decoration up, a very large Halloween decoration, a giant spider on a web, and I said, oh, it's the Christmas spider. (laughs) I mean, I do complain about how soon Christmas decorations go up sometimes, but the truth is, it, it speaks to a, or of a cultural reality that is worth paying attention to. To Christmas is popular. 
Christmas is popular. <clears throat> Take Christmas movies, for example. As of 2021, I probably spent more time on this than I should have. But anyway, as of 2021, not counting animated films or adult films often associated with Christmas like Die Hard. Since the early 1900s, when the movie industry got started, there have been 346 family-oriented Christmas movies. In addition, 116 brand-new Christmas movies were released this year. And to date, my favorite statistic, the Hallmark Channel, <laughs> my mother-in-law's favorite channel this time of year, the Hallmark Channel has 431 Christmas movies in its library alone. Why? Now the cynic among us, the cynic within us, might say, well, because Christmas is big money. The National Retail Federation, after all, predicts that this Christmas consumers will spend at least $957.3 billion. Billion with a B. I bet that's the first whistle I've ever heard in the middle of a sermon. <clears throat> but even behind that, the same question begs an answer. Why? Why does Christmas make such big money? Why do audiences seem to want ever newer expressions of Christmas in the movies? I actually stumbled upon, a, 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 in the New York Times, a diagram of Hallmark Christmas movies and the formula. They know exactly how to get people to tune in and make money off of this. But why? Why are we always looking for that? Why are we always welcoming new Christmas movies, even people who don't, don't think about the religious nature of Christmas? Even when those movies have no mention of the birth of Christ, no mention of the Word becoming flesh, or even that the word Christ is right there in the word Christmas. And my guess, there are other answers, cynical answers, I get it, but my guess is there's something to this. Christmas is so wildly popular, so financially successful, year after year, in part because somewhere, deep down, beneath all the trappings, the core truth of the word of God becoming, becoming flesh and, and, and blood and bone and living among us breaks through, seeps in, or hides in plain sight. For example... People who might not normally express anything about faith in Christ will sing about him, Christ, in movies and in real life. They will sing, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. They will sing, Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. They will sing, Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Wait, not that one. In one of the more profoundly one, profound ones that, uh, personally, that I, in terms of the lyrics and what's being said, they will sing of the reality that in Christ, God has reversed everything that went wrong. We're going to sing this in a bit. Everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden is being reversed. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The core truth of Christmas, 
the incarnation, the enfleshing of God among us in Christ Jesus is, if you'll forgive the metaphor, viral. It's viral. Sure, it gets changed along the way. It mutates. But it's there. And at times it's hidden under layers of wrapping paper and bows and tinsel, but it's there, and that matters. That matters. So this morning is both the fourth Sunday of Advent and Christmas Eve. To name it as the fourth Sunday of Advent is to name the waiting and the longing for the Messiah that took place thousands of years ago. Advent, again, is not Christmas. It is a time when we, in a very small way, pay homage to the hundreds of years that the people of God waited in silence. They endured the silence between the final words of the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures and the first words of the Gospels in the coming of the Savior. Now, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the season of Advent, four weeks long, that silence in between, 400 years long. We observe this season every year because, well, I don't know about you, but I need to hear this story at least once a year. I need to hear the story and be reminded of the gift and the wonder that took place in Mary's womb 2,000 years ago. I need to be reminded of Mary's courage and Mary's humility. I need to be reminded of Joseph's commitment to her and to God. I need to be reminded of the shepherds and their wonder and the stealth of the magi. And most of all, I need to be reminded of the wonder of the God of the universe submitting himself to Mary's womb and to life and death on this planet as one of us. This is a good place to note, by the way, once more, what a great job um, our students and children did of retelling that story last week. Many of us, many of us, uh, well, I'll give you a chance. Wait just a second. I'll give you a chance. I want to say something else, and then I want you to applaud, because I, I really do. Many of, of you have told us how meaningful, how wonderful it was um, when the children and the youth presented ECC's retelling of it in the Shadowbox Nativity. And I agree, they did a fantastic job. I had nothing to do with it. There we go. <clears throat> that was not the chance I was going to give you. <clears throat> All the credit goes to the children, the youth, to Megan, Kristen, Danielle, and Chuck, who led them, who taught them, who directed them, who worked up front and behind the scenes now. Okay. Y'all are squarely today. I know, it's Christmas, right? Into high school, into high school, I would, no, wait, into my early years of college, I would still get up at like two in the morning on Christmas morning to see what was under the tree. I get squirrely. I understand it. <clears throat> In the centuries leading up to the birth of Christ, the Jewish people longed for God to move and to act on their behalf, to hear, to hear their cries and to answer them. And what they longed for, in a word, was the Messiah. What they longed for was someone to believe in, someone to follow, someone who would take everything wrong with the world and make it right again, someone who would rescue them from their oppressors, be it Babylon or Rome or whoever. And if we were to skip down a bit from the story we read, 
right after Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who pronounces a blessing on her and on the child she is carrying, Mary responds with a song. And in this song, we hear Mary singing about her hopes. This is from Luke 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, he has, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. These things that Mary sings about are past realities and future promises. Mary sees these promises, in a sense, as already accomplished. Once things have been set in motion, already accomplished. Once the child in her womb is conceived, God's plan will succeed. No word from God will ever fail. The Jewish people long for a Messiah who would rule over other Messiahs. The word Messiah just means anointed, and it refers to those who were anointed as kings. In Greek, it comes to us as Christ, Christos. That's why we refer to Christ as Christ. And it did not initially mean someone of divine origin. It was a king. As with many of the prophecies we discover in the Old Testament, though, they, they meant one thing, but then later on, with the coming of Christ that changes everything, those, who, those first followers of Jesus realized as they thought about it, as they pondered it, as they discussed it, as they prayed about it, they realized that these prophecies in the Old Testament meant more than we originally thought. Now, Son of God does not merely mean king, it means that, and it means that God has come to us in Christ Jesus. It means that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. God has entered the world and given us someone we can truly believe in and rely on forever. I recently listened to a book that I read or was supposed to read in seminary, can't remember for sure. It was written by St. Athanasius around 318 A.D. It was entitled, On the Incarnation. And again, the Incarnation is the act of the Word becoming flesh. And this book, to this day, continues to be read and studied. And probably the most often quoted line from it that is uh, profound and controversial for some of us. Uh, one of the things Athanasius, boy... I got two more services to do, too. This is what he said. For the Son of God became human so that we might become God. What does that mean? It's a reference to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, where Peter writes that because of our faith in the faithfulness of Christ, something has happened and is happening to us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. and 4, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. 
Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. The divine nature. God's very nature. To become God, then, is to be partakers of God's divine nature. It is not merely to do what God did or even what Jesus did. It is to experience a transformation from within it is to be, as John 1.12 puts it, born of God. Born of God. God has big plans for humanity and all of creation. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the magi, the prophets, you and I are all a part of, this, of God's divine conspiracy. In Mary, Christ became one of us, and in Christ we become partakers in God's divine nature. C.S. Lewis famously tells us that, quote, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. He's talking about us. And yet that is exactly what God sent His one and only Son to do. His mission was not merely to save us from judgment and take us to heaven, but to transform us. To restore His image within us. Is what the Apostle Paul means when he writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we all are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Likewise, Romans 8.29, Paul says that we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. That's not merely heaven talk. That's here and now talk. That's what God is doing in us and through us and to us every day, forming us, restoring the image of God within us and making us whole. This enables us to reflect God's image in the world. This enables us to become the loving presence of Christ to our neighbors. In Christ, the immortal becomes mortal. In Christ, the invisible becomes visible. In Christ, the omnipresent becomes present. In Christ, the infinite becomes an infant. In this passage, we refer to as the Annunciation. Mary is told that she has found favor with God and that God has a plan for her life. Now to be clear, from the way this encounter is told, Mary has a choice. The conversation, the back and forth, the time Gabriel takes to explain these things to her and her free and willing consent in the last verse demonstrate this. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled, she says. Mary gives what one author refers to as her courageous consent. Her courageous consent. And in doing so, Mary becomes the God-bearer, the Theotokos. But this is only the beginning of the story, for we are all asked to do the same. We are all asked to do the same. We are all asked for our courageous consent. 
We are asked to carry God within us even as God carries us. And like Mary, in order to do so, we all must rely on the presence and the power and the persistence of God's Holy Spirit within us, overshadowing us, directing us, birthing new things in us and through us into the world. We who know God in Christ in our own way are also theotokos. We bear God to others and to the world. As we enter our Christmas celebrations later today, as we leave 2023 behind us and embrace 2024, let Mary be our guide. Let Mary be our example, our model, our inspiration of what it means to give our courageous consent to Jesus and what it means for us to carry God with us into the world, into the lives of others, and all of our relationships, even as God carries us. What is God inviting you into this morning, this Christmas? What is God wanting to do for you, in you, and through you in the year to come? Whatever that may be for you and for me. You, know, I'm not, you may not know what that is. I'm not saying you have to know what that is, but when you find out, when you get some inkling that God is speaking to you, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to it? Whatever that may be for you and me, may we all have the courage and the grace to consent to God's calling and to say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks this day for the gift of your Son, for the gift of a Savior. We give you thanks for Mary, who brought you into the world in the form of Christ. We give you thanks, Lord, for her courageous consent and everything that began to happen because she said yes. And I pray for us, God, first of all, that we would say yes, that when we sense that you are asking us to do something, you're asking us to do a hard thing, you're asking us to suffer for doing the right thing, whatever it might be, God, would you enable us to give to you our courageous consent as well. And in us and through us, Lord, I pray you would birth new things into the world. And I pray, God, in the rest of this day, in the week to come, as we encounter all the potentially superficial celebrations of Christmas, Christmas specials, Christmas decorations, Christmas songs, Lord, would you remind us that all of these things are here because at the core of it all, the Word was made flesh and blood and made His dwelling among us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.